you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Genesis 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's one for you in the pew. That you, If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that. We want to help you take next steps in your spiritual life. We're in Genesis 17. That's page 14 in your pew Bible. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer your name will be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. 
He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to a passage like this and we are reminded afresh and anew that symbols and signs have significance when there is faith in you, a personal faith, a a decision, an internal faith. Lord, we are reminded that symbols and signs like this are a reminder of your character and your purposes and your promises. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this sign of circumcision, the significance of it, and more importantly, what it reveals about who you are and how you deal with us even today in the struggles and the testings and the promises that you have made to us. Lord, may your word be alive by your spirit. May we be not merely hearers of your word, but doers. And may the preaching of your word pierce deep and cut to the very heart of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we continue in our series in the life of Abraham. And here's the question that I want us to consider throughout this text. And that is, what can you count on in this world? Who can you really trust? Surveys show that we don't trust anybody these days. People don't trust their employers, they don't trust their doctors, they don't trust their banks, and we certainly don't trust our politicians. In fact, it appears that we cannot even trust now the CDC, the FDA, the FBI, and the IRS, and now we can't even trust TikTok on our phones. So whom can you trust? Whom can you count on these days? In our society, is there anybody that you can rely on who is true to their word, who can be trusted? And the Bible tells us in this passage of Scripture Yes, there is. And his name is El Shaddai. His name is God Almighty. But how can I be sure that God will be there for me? What if I make some mistakes and make a mess of my life like Abraham did? What if I let God down like both Abraham and Sarah did last week? And if I come back to him, will he still receive me? Will he accept me? How can I know all this for sure? Well, these are the kinds of questions that 
the next part of Abraham's story deals with weary of waiting for God's promise of a son. We saw last Sunday that Abraham ran ahead of God and tried to fulfill God's plan through Sarah's servant, Hagar, and he ended up making a bigger, a huge mess of their lives. Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And 13 years later, Abraham is still wondering if he still had a future in God's promises. Was there there still hope for this man who had run ahead of God, who had shortcut his faith? And, And Genesis 17 answers that question for us with a resounding yes. In fact, here's what we see in this chapter about our covenant God. And that is our God keeps his covenant with his people. Genesis 17 is certainly a strange chapter. In fact, it talks about every man's favorite subject, circumcision. And it does so within the context, though, of our covenant God. God says to Abraham in verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and you. So you don't find that sort of thing in the ancient world. Listen, there are no covenants being made between a deity and humanity. Only God relates to his people by a covenant. And that's what we saw God doing in chapter 15, where God cut a covenant with Abraham. You might remember a covenant is it's an agreement where where that brings two parties together into a relationship of commitment. But this particular covenant that that God made with Abraham is kind of like a lopsided covenant. Why? Because God did everything while Abraham, in chapter 15, just had to trust God. He just had to rest in the covenant that God was cutting with him. Remember, God alone walked through the bloody animals that graphically and graphically ratified his promises to give Abraham a son through which God would redeem people from their sin. And this is all done because of the grace of God. Abraham didn't deserve any of this. God did it by grace, and it's astounding, it's amazing, and that's what we saw in chapter 15. And now we see this covenant confirmed here in chapter 17. In fact, The word covenant, this idea, this concept, it is the focus of this chapter. The very word covenant occurs some 13 times in this chapter. And so the covenant that was cut by God in chapter 15 is now confirmed by God here in chapter 17. And it's confirmed with this covenant sign of circumcision to seal Abraham's claim to God's covenant promises. And you might be thinking... That's great, but why should I care? What's the big deal? Why should I care about this chapter? Why should I even care about our covenant God? Here's why. Because this chapter in particular, it reinforces for us the truth that our God, this covenant God of ours, keeps his covenant promises with his covenant people. And that makes all the difference in the world for me and for you. We learned that in spite of Abraham's failure in chapter 16, God did not let him go. God did not start over with somebody else. He did not find someone else. 
God kept his covenant promises to Abraham. And we see that here. And in the same way, God will keep his promises to you. It's beautiful. But this begs the question, what does it mean then to have a, quote, covenant God? What difference does it make? Why should I care? And that's the question I want to answer for us this morning. Here's what it means to have a covenant God. Number one, it means having a God who, yes, oftentimes baffles us with his covenant delays. You might notice the huge gap between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. It's only a little gap of white space in your Bibles, but it's actually far more in reality. In fact, that gap actually spans 13 years. At the end of chapter 16, Abraham, we are told, is 86 years old. And in the very first verse here in chapter 17, we are told that he is now 99 years old. That's 13 years gap. That means there's, it's 13 years of, of God delaying his promise of a son. It's 13 years of waiting and waiting and waiting on God. It's 13 years also of silence from God. No vision of God, no voice of God, no visit from God, only silence. And it's easy for us here just to, to zoom past this 13-year gap and rejoin the action in Abraham's life. But Moses wants us to at least pause here for a moment, not necessarily pause for 13 years, but perhaps 13 seconds, and just think about this for a minute of what it means. And here's what Moses wants us to think about. When God delays, it doesn't mean that God isn't working. And the principle is this. God's promises are not affected by our failure of faith. Just as God's promises were not affected by Abraham's failure of faith in chapter 16. Listen, Ishmael, this this child of of running ahead of God, was now 13 years old. And though Ishmael was, was dearly loved by Abraham... The 13 years of of growing up now in Abraham's tent only increased the tension between Sarah and Hagar. God now gives Abraham 13 years to to ponder this, to, to think about his sin, to think about his lapse of faith and the consequences of it. And yet, these 13 years of delay and silence were ordained by God. They were planned by God to teach Abraham now the folly of acting on his own, of running ahead of God. Nevertheless, waiting on God in silence, that will test anyone's faith, including Abraham's faith. But God was preparing Abraham for greater days. He just didn't know it yet. In fact, Abraham... I believe he lived with this, this false premise that Ishmael was the answer to all of God's promises. God would have to reorient Abraham's outlook, though, by, by now forcing him here in chapter 17 to, to face God's plan, not his plan, to fulfill his covenant promises. And so what you have here in chapter 17 is, is mostly filled with God now 
talking to Abraham. He appears to Abraham and talks to Abraham all to get him tuned in once again to God's perfect plan for his life. Remember, when God delays, that does not mean he isn't working. God's promises are not affected by your failures or my failures of faith. Listen, our God is a God of grace. Aren't you thankful for that? And God is still working out these promises in the life of Abraham. God did not forget about Abraham. After 13 years, God now breaks the silence and he spoke to Abraham once again. And look what God says in verses 1 and 12. 1 and 2, I'm sorry. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So notice what God desires of Abraham here. And it's the same thing that God desires or expects of every one of us here today. First of all, God wants us to know that he is God Almighty. For the first time in the Bible, God identifies himself as God Almighty, or in the Hebrew, the title is El Shaddai. And this title, it signifies God's power in his sovereignty. It basically means what God is saying to Abraham, I am your God. I am the all-powerful God, the all-powerful one. And it describes God as this almighty God who makes things happen by the means of his majestic power and might. In other words, it was God's way of coming to Abraham after 13 years of delay and silence and saying, Abraham, what are you worried about? I am all-powerful. I am able to keep my promises to give you a son in land. I can handle any circumstance that comes before me, including your old age now. There is no need to to scale down my promises. There is no need to to match your puny thoughts to my promises. There's no need to resort to human intervention like you tried to do in chapter 15. Everything, all of your life, all of your future, it lies in this one fact, Abraham. I am God Almighty. Trust me. And it's the same for us today. We, we, the way we live so often is determined by what we simply think about God. And the reality is, some of us, we have a way too small of a God in our minds. We need to refocus on the God of the scriptures here, the God of the Bible, the God of El Shaddai the all-powerful one. We often have such a diminished, limited view of God, but if our God is El Shaddai, the almighty God of Abraham, then our lives will begin to live out the fullness of God's promises to us. As one author writes, what you truly, truly believe about God is the most important thing in your life. Any thoughts of God that is less than God Almighty will shrink your soul and neutralize your faith. Second, God not only wants you to know that he is God Almighty, he wants us to walk faithfully before him. God tells Abraham what he expects of him when he says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, we understand that walking here is not literal. 
It's an analogy referring to Abraham's relationship with God. It's, it's living with this constant awareness of God's presence presiding over you. And the implication is that we are accountable to God. And that we should seek to please him with our lives. In, in other words, it's the opposite. Walking before God is the very opposite of what Abraham did in chapter 15 when he ran ahead of God. And this is why God, God is reminding Abraham of this. This is my expectation for you. I want you to walk before me as the Lord, and I am God Almighty. It didn't matter that God has delayed his promise of a son. God wanted Abraham to walk before him, trusting him and obeying him faithfully day after day over the long run of his life. We're not to run, we are to walk. And the idea is it is regular, it's consistent, it's day after day. This command then leads to another command where God says, and be blameless. And that does not mean sinless. Rather, it means wholeness or having integrity. So in other words, God is calling for Abraham to now walk before him and be holy or completely devoted to him and him alone. God's commands are always accompanied by God's promises. And so God went on to tell Abraham in verse 2, Walk before me and be blameless. Why? That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, this is the same promise that God had already promised Abraham 24 years earlier. And now God is reconfirming his promises to Abraham once again. And this word make, it's interesting because it means to confirm. Some of your translations may even have that word, confirm. It's the idea to set in motion. So God says, I, that I may make my covenant. In other words, may, may I set my covenant in motion with you. Abraham had to learn the hard way that he, he cannot set God's plans or promises, in this case, the covenant in motion. He tried that. He tried to run ahead of God and set it in motion. And he fell miserably and made a mess of his life. And now God is reminding him, I will confirm this. I will set this covenant in motion for your life. Just wait on me and trust me about this. At the same time, God is reminding Abraham that his promises are not affected by Abraham's failure of faith 13 years earlier. I'm still committed to you. I'm not seeking to find somebody else. My grace is greater than your failure. Here it is. And how did Abraham respond to the Lord? It's beautiful. According to verse 3, then Abram fell on his face. That is amazing, and that is beautiful. And that is the response that God wants from all of us. When confronted with El Shaddai, Abraham fell down in humble submission and silence. So think of it. What he's doing by falling down, it is an act of submission to God. It is also in silence. He is not questioning God here like he did before. Instead, he was now knocked over and blown away by Almighty God. And now Abraham's heart is ready. It has been humbled and he is ready 
to hear from God. What does it mean to have a covenant God? It means having a God who, yes, oftentimes baffles us with his covenant delays, and yet knowing that he is God Almighty, who expects us to walk before him in total devotion day after day after day. Number two, it means having a God who reassures us with his covenant promises. And this reassurance begins when God talks with Abraham in verse 4, when God says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Note, it's not just one great nation, but many nations will come from Abraham. For Abraham to become the father of a multitude of nations, though, he would now need to father a son from Sarah or with Sarah. And to formalize this moment, God gave Abraham and Sarah both new names. Notice it. First of all, God pledged his promises to Abraham by giving him a new name. God tells Abraham in verse 5, you'll see it there, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So God is doing something here for Abraham in the changing of his name. You say, what? Well, in changing Abraham's name, God is actually doing two things. First, God, he's asserting his sovereign authority or lordship over Abraham's life. For to change one's life, name, means you have authority over them. In fact, it's interesting in the Bible, the father names the child. Why? Because it's, a, it's a significant of his authority over that child. And here in the same way, God is changing the name of Abraham, signifying and representing my sovereign authority over your life. God had brought Abraham out of Ur, and now Abraham belonged wholly, completely, to God and God alone. And second, God is confirming on Abraham a brand new identity with this new name as a symbol of the transformation of his character and even his destiny. In other words, Abraham is no longer the same person that he was in the land of Ur, in the Chaldeans there. As a result of God's grace, his life is radically changed. His destiny is radically changed. Just in the same way for you and I, we are new creations in Christ. We have new identities in Christ. And Peter talks about this in the New Testament. Paul does as well. It is beautiful what God does here. So God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, which means now a father of a multitude. And the effect was, imagine this, that every time people called him Abraham, Abraham, it reminded him of what? of God's promise that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. Oh, how reassuring this must have been for Abraham to hear each day for the rest of his life that his God is a covenant God. Even if others thought he was losing his mind in his old age or because the desert sun was now getting to him, it didn't matter. Abraham, father of a multitude. It's a reminder of the covenant God he has. Then the Lord revealed even more details concerning his promise in verses 6 through 8. Look at it. 
God says to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And as you might imagine, this was way beyond Abraham's dreams that such a promise of this magnitude would actually come true. Think about it. God said that kings would come from Abraham. Kings. And lo and behold, a thousand years later, the founding of a line of kings in the Davidic dynasty began the fulfillment of this very promise which was then ultimately fulfilled in another thousand years later in the coming of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Matthew celebrates in his gospel. At the very beginning of it, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and the Jewish people celebrated it on Palm Sunday. Today, when they shouted, for example, in Matthew 21, 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. And then don't miss, oh, don't miss the, the certainty of these promises that God is making to Abraham. No less than five times, God says to Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That means there is hope in the face of hopelessness. That means there is a way when you cannot see it. There's an answer when you don't have one. God Almighty is the hope. He is the way. He is the answer. When he says to Abraham, and he still says to you and I today, I will. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Or as Victor Hamilton put it, this covenant with Abraham is something that God initiates, something God maintains, and something God brings to fulfillment. In other words, it all is dependent on God and it's all because of his grace. Whoa. Second, God pledged his promise to Sarah by giving her a new name. And we see this when you drop down into verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So Sarah got a new name too, although it's more like an updated name. Because Sarah simply means princess, just like her birth name, Sarai. They have the same meaning. So what God said next, though, about Sarah is nothing short of incredible in verse 16. Look at it. God says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of peoples shall come from her. And this is incredible, and all of this came true. Sarah would become the mother of kings, and ultimately the lion of the tribe of Judah would come from her. You read that in Genesis 49.10. And so now Abraham, this, this father of multitude, has his princess in Sarah, and all of this just took Abraham by surprise. He is blown away by it. But then it quickly dawned on him, God is serious with this. So how did Abraham react? Well, notice this in your notes. Abraham laughed in amazement at God's plan to fulfill his promises in ways that seemed impossible. It is oh so interesting to see how Abraham reacted 
to these incredible promises that God is making to him. He laughed. But before he laughed, notice that he, he fell face down again. He fell face down in worship, which then turned into laughter. And this is not unbelief, but rather shock. God does not rebuke Abraham here. And so he's in total shock because he just cannot fathom in his human mind how he and Sarah could have a kid in their old ages. And as he laughed, he kind of thought to himself in verse 17, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And generally speaking, the answer to both those questions is what? No! No! After all, this has only happened once in human history, and that took place 4,000 years ago. So Abraham is on pretty solid ground here to kind of just laugh in amazement. And that's why Abraham even brings up his son Ishmael to God in verse 18. Where he, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And so remember, for the last 13 years, Abraham falsely assumed that Ishmael was the fulfillment of the promise. And now God comes to him and says, no, Sarah's going to have a son, and he's just blown away by it. He's just shocked by it. But notice God's response to Abraham in verses 19 and 20. God said to him, no, 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 no. It's not Ishmael. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, God didn't forget about Ishmael. God says, I heard you, and behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And then God adds one more detail in verse 21. Look at it in your Bibles. God says, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Do you know what Isaac's name means? Laughter. Laughter. Abraham laughed at the promise, and now God tells Abraham, you need to name your son Laughter. You laugh in amazement, now name him Laughter. His name is Isaac, and it kind of makes you wonder if God was laughing here when he told him that. After 24 years of waiting, Abraham, think about this, will celebrate his 100th birthday by making room for a baby in his tent and changing diapers. I'm laughing. And so when God was finished talking with Abraham, the question is, did Abraham believe God or did he not believe God? Oh, Abraham believed all right. But his faith, yes, indeed, it was pushed to the very limits. But listen to what Paul says about Abraham in this particular moment in Romans 4, verses 18 through 21. Just listen to this. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. 
so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He was God Almighty. And Abraham believed it. Yes, he was pushed to the limit of it, but he believed. This is El Shaddai, our covenant God. What does it mean to have a covenant God? It means having a God who, yes, baffles us with his covenant delays, but also he, in grace, he reassures us with his covenant promises. And number three, it now means having a God who sets us apart with his covenant sign. Notice what God said to Abraham. Go back to verse 9. He says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So God is commanding Abraham to do something here. Abraham and his descendants are to, quote, keep God's covenant. God had fulfilled, or I should say God had outlined his part of the covenant. He did that in chapter 15. He now does it again in chapter 17 here. And now for the first time, he gave Abraham a part to play in the covenant. He was to, quote, keep the covenant and teach his descendants to do the same. And so what did it mean for Abraham and his descendants to keep God's covenant? Well, it meant specifically keeping the sign of God's God's covenant promises. And this sign set Abraham and his descendants apart as God's people, and this sign signified that they belonged to God Almighty. So what's the sign of the covenant? Well, it's every man's favorite topic, circumcision. So notice it here the sign of God's covenant promises. God instituted circumcision as the sign of his covenant. So for Abraham and his descendants, signing on the dotted line of the covenant takes the form of circumcision, a bloody cutting off of the foreskin. And you read about it in verses 10 and 11, and then God gives further instruction to Abraham in verses 11 through 13. Now, there's no doubt about it. Circumcision is a rather strange sign for God's covenant promises. It's a sign that involves cutting away of the foreskin of the male sexual organ. Why? What does it mean? Think of it this way. Circumcision is God's, quote, brand. It's it's God's way of marking out Abraham and his descendants as belonging to God. You are mine. I I bought you. I brought you out of Ur. You, your family, and all your descendants. It's by my grace, and I'm now marking you out as mine. I'm your God. 
Circumcision is also this, this outward expression of Abraham and his descendants, the outward expression of their allegiance to God, their devotion to God and his covenant promises. In other words, the circumcision is symbolized their, their faith in God. It symbolized their faith in his promises that he would fulfill them, as well as their spiritual commitment, their heart devotion to God himself. We trust you. We're going to follow you. And so for circumc- in circumcision, specifically for Abraham, it also involved Abraham's, think about it, his powers of procreation. Without, without getting into detail here, think with me on this. Circumcision, is, it involved his areas or the powers of procreation, the area of his life where he did what? Where he ran ahead of God with Hagar. So for Abraham, very specifically, circumcision was now an act of repentance of his sin. It was also a sign of his dependence on God Almighty. In other words, circumcision, in a very literal way, but in a symbolic way, it cut off the flesh where he sinned in order to say, in a spiritual commitment to God, I place no confidence in the flesh. And oh, that is what we need to do today. Not necessarily a a literal circumcision, although it is still very prevalent in our culture today. In fact, the latest statistics are that every child who is born a male in the United States, it's about 86% are circumcised. But not for this reason. It's for hygiene reasons, other reasons, cultural reasons. has nothing to do with this. So here's the question. While circumcision, in a literal way, cuts off the flesh in order to say, in a spiritual way, I place no confidence in the flesh, the question is, did circumcision save Abraham? Did circumcision save his descendants? And the answer is no, just as baptism doesn't save anyone here today. Listen, circumcision did not give Abraham in his descendants' salvation. It simply reminded them that God is the one who gives grace to the undeserving, and it must be received by faith. Think about this. Ishmael, on the very same day, was circumcised as Abraham. But Ishmael will prove out that he showed absolutely no sign of a heart that was regenerated or renewed by God's grace. Although he bore the sign of circumcision, the sign of covenant, Ishmael was not ultimately part of God's covenant community, God's people. He was still outside of it, even though he took on the sign of circumcision. Why? Because his heart was never circumcised. His heart was never in devotion to God, never trusting God. And the same thing happens today. You see, circumcision simply pointed Abraham and his descendants to God. 
who alone could save them. And if they trusted in God like their father Abraham did, then they would find salvation in God through Abraham's offspring, ultimately the one, Jesus Christ. But if they rejected God, get this, they would then be, quote, cut off from God. This is why Moses, later on, before the children of Israel enter into the promised land, he reminds them, he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, listen to it, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That's the purpose of this circumcision here. That's ultimately what God wanted from Abraham and his descendants was for their hearts to be circumcised to him, set apart to him, which circumcision, the physical symbol, simply represented that just as baptism for us represents our wholehearted commitment to follow God and be part of his covenant community called the church. It brings us to number two. God warned, though, against disregarding the sign of his covenant. Now, in Abraham's day, a man had a choice. He could receive circumcision or he could reject circumcision. But by rejecting circumcision, it meant that he was rejecting whom? He was rejecting God. And he was rejecting God's promises And it meant that he didn't care about God's promises. It meant by rejecting circumcision, the physical act of it, that he didn't want any connection with God who made the promises. He didn't want to have anything to do with God's covenant community. At that time, the children of Israel. And therefore, if he rejected circumcision in what it symbolized, he would then be, quote, cut off from God. And it is a play on words very specifically. Listen to what it says in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, God is saying, if you are not willing to cut off the foreskin as a symbol of your commitment to me, then you will be cut off from me. It was very serious. God was making it very clear, crystal clear, that there was only one way to be saved. God's way. Here in circumcision, we have one of the earliest warnings that there is no way but God's way. Just as there was only one way under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, there is only one way of salvation under the New Covenant that we are under today. Jesus, who who made the New Covenant with His blood, which we will celebrate tonight, said that He is the only way to the Father. John 14, 6. And then third, notice it. Abraham obeyed God by keeping the sign of His covenant. It's quite interesting, verses 22 and 27 here emphasize Abraham's complete and total obedience to God's command here. He was, in other words, all in when it came to keeping the sign of circumcision. 
and when it comes to circumcision, there's no middle ground. You either are all in or you're out. You're either in the covenant or you're outside of the covenant. And so it says, on that very day, Abraham circumcised himself, Ishmael, and the rest of his household. There was no delay. There was no thinking it over. There was no praying about it. Why? He has seen God show himself faithful time and time again. And so he, he presses into this covenant, and he takes a sign on himself and his household as a symbol of his faith in God Almighty El Shaddai. And, of course, by the time we get to the first century, In the life of Christ, many Jewish rabbis believe that this act, this circumcision that God initiated here in Genesis 17, it now automatically made one righteous in God's eyes. They viewed circumcision as as this symbol, as this mark of superiority. But Paul set the record straight. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, listen to what he says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And then Paul says this, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, what Paul is reminding us here today is that circumcision was never meant to be an end in of itself. The physical mark of circumcision was always meant to symbolize the spiritual commitment of one's life to God Almighty. And so circumcision, even now, that God requires today is is not the literal physical circumcision, what he wants from all of us here is circumcision of the heart that is done by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, what Paul is telling us now is that we, we are called, us here today is As New Testament believers, we are called to live a, a, quote, circumcised life that is fully devoted to God, and it's a work done by the Spirit of God. Like Abraham, we are called to be set apart unto God. We are called to be distinct and different as we live in this world. And the sign of this, the sign of this heart devotion and heart commitment to God, it is now for us, it is baptism. And of course, all of this, the circumcision of the heart, it's only possible, it's only made possible because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. In fact, the Bible talks about a kind of circumcision that is actually done by Christ on the cross. Notice this in your notes. That is, Jesus underwent the ultimate circumcision on the cross that we might receive the ultimate circumcision of the heart. Jesus was was cut off from God so that we can be brought in a covenant relationship with God through faith. This Friday is what? It's Good Friday. It's the day Jesus died on the cross and there was much pain, there was blood that Jesus underwent the ultimate circumcision for us. Paul tells us in Colossians, this is in your notes too, 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the faith. In other words, what Paul's telling us is that Jesus' body was, was cut away for our sin. He was literally, he was cut off from God for our sin so that we are not condemned in our sin. Jesus died for our sins and he died for all our Hagar plans. He canceled the debt of our sin in his death so that we can live together with him for all eternity through faith in him. This is actually the heart of God's covenant promise. Notice this in your notes. Here's the heart of it. God promises his presence. In other words, God promises to be our God now and forever. As one commentator put it, the essence of the covenant is God saying to Abraham, be mine and I will be yours. And that's what God is saying to us even today. Twice God said it in Genesis 17. He tells Abraham, I will be your God. And then God repeats this promise. I will be your God. I will be your God. He repeats it all through the scriptures. Exodus 6, 7, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Leviticus 26, 12, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a new heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And you come to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, 3, where it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them that they may be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This, folks, is the promise that God made to Abraham. It's the promise that God made to the multitude of nations that came after Abraham. And it's the promise that he is making to you today to all those who prove to be true children of Abraham by faith. This is why the promise matters. This is why it matters that God keeps his promise. I will be your God. And the question is, are you brought in on God's promises? Or are you, are you cut off from God's promises? And there's no middle ground. You've either been brought into the covenant community or you are cut off from the covenant community of God. And every one of us here needs to evaluate and we need to examine where do I stand in relation to that promise? Have I been brought in by faith in Jesus Christ? And Jesus is the only one that can bring us in. Or am I, in the rejection of Christ, am I still cut off? And if you die in that state, you will be cut off from God for all eternity. So this, what we read in Genesis 17, it is, it is super important. We have a covenant God who made covenant promises that we are banking our lives on for all eternity. Have you been brought in? Have you repented of your faith and your need and see the need of Jesus Christ and been brought in through faith? Or are you still cut 
off. With your heads bowed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us these great and precious promises. Give us a heart of faith to trust you and to walk before you. And when we fail, to give us a heart of repentance, knowing that we are forgiven and accepted in your grace. We praise you for being our covenant God who keeps your covenant promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, I pray. I, I just want to encourage you to evaluate where you are in relation to the covenant promise of God, to be your God. Is he your God? Have you been brought in or are you cut off? And for you that are part of our church family, I hope you will come tonight as we get to celebrate at the table of Christ. It's because of him that we are brought in. And we get to renew that and celebrate that commitment. Will you join us? You are dismissed.